G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Elizabeth Kendall, welcome along to 2020. Thank you for having me, Neil. And let me say congratulations because uh, you've got your book, it's in your hot little hand and I I just know from uh, uh, almost... uh, talking alongside you through this whole process just how difficult it is getting a book to a place where it is published and it is in your hand and it is for sale uh, how how significant is it that uh, that finally uh, it's this week that that's happened well it's amazing this has been a very interesting couple of weeks we've had the Chilcot report released in the UK uh, explaining that uh, uh, that hindsight was not needed to understand all the problems that were going to erupt from the from the US-led invasion of Iraq. These things were all clear before the invasion and uh, the, my book makes that very clear too. Anyone who understands history and religion would have known. Then you've, we've also got um, uh, a number of other things. We've got the coup in Turkey. We've got uh, uh, rumours that that America has proposed a cooperative agreement with Russia, which is something I also advocate uh, in in one of the latter chapters of my book. So so it's relevant to so much of what is happening. And uh, yes, uh, you have walked with me through this, I know, because it's been an agonising right, actually. It was um, a lot of hard work and a lot of it was very painful to do. And I'm very pleased to see it done and I'm really hoping and praying that it really makes a difference, that it moves people to become engaged in this subject. Well, let's talk very, very basic things because we'll get into the issues and I want to invite our listeners to also participate in our conversation. And uh, oftentimes when you're talking about uh, big political uh, issues uh, to do with the globe. Uh, there are people with uh, who have got concerns. Uh, some listeners will have insights. Some might have questions, and others might like to contribute uh, by way of just recognising the seriousness of the situation and contributing on how we might pray through those issues as Christians. And that's always an element of our conversations. But the book is called "After Saturday Comes Sunday." What does that title mean, Elizabeth Kendall? Well, it's uh, it's really creates the framework for the book. <clears throat> um, and after Saturday comes Sunday is actually an Arab Islamic threat that has been popularised in through the 20th century by Hamas and other jihadist groups. And what it essentially means is after sat, after we kill that is after we the Muslims kill the Jews who are the Saturday people who worship on a Saturday, then Sunday comes and we call the Christians the Sunday people who worship on a Sunday. So it's a threat with genocidal intent. The Muslims are going to kill the, the Jews and then they're going to kill the Christians. And it is uh, the framework of the book because I, ca- I start with it in the first chapter and I come back to it in the last chapter. Okay, now is there connection here for people in Australia because... Oftentimes uh, we, well, it's shocking actually just to hear 
that that has been a, a long-established Islamic-style saying, after Saturday comes Sunday, and to recognise the meaning there, uh, kill the Jews first, uh, then kill the Christians. Uh, for us here in Australia, and uh, for most of us enjoying our safety so far removed, uh, does this mean that uh, there is a sense in which this is happening on the other side of the world in the Middle East and we are not affected here? How do how do we actually include ourselves uh, in what's happening globally? Are we also under threat? Well, uh, one comment I make actually in, in the blurb on the back of the book and that comes through almost as a subplot through the book is that we in the West are living in what is now really a post-Christian environment uh, where our progressive, uh, they call themselves progressive, political, academic and media elites uh, really have very little concern for Christians at all. They actually are looking forward to the post-Christian age when we will have evolved beyond Christianity. And so they have very little concern for uh, the, the, the plight of Christians facing genocide in the Middle East. And um, the point of this book is that we really need, people need to start listening to the Christians of the Middle East and hearing what they're saying and believing what they're saying. Because if they don't, then their plight will become our own plight eventually. Uh, We have to start believing the Christians of the Middle East and not just writing them off as um, uh, politically incorrect, you know, dinosaurs that need to either evolve or perish. And that's what our, you know, academic and media elite are doing at the moment. Uh, And uh, the the church especially needs to respond. Well, what's happening with Christians in the Middle East is so significant because... Uh, there is, uh, and the the words that we use here are very important, and I know you choose the word carefully when you talk about it, but when we talk about this word genocide, uh, the ethnic cleansing of uh, racial or religious minorities, this is what has been happening in uh, the nation of Syria and other nations in the Middle East. And this is something that's not new. This has been continuing for a long time. Uh, let, tell me about this, the strength of that word genocide and the idea that that is still continuing today. Well, if we just look at the figures in, in Iraq, uh, you've got a situation in Iraq where at the last census, which was in 1987, there were about 1.5 million Assyrians. The Assyrians are the indigenous nation of Mesopotamia. Uh, We know them from our Old Testament studies. I wrote about them in Turn Back the Battle. And uh, they have been there long before Islam. They were one of the first nations to adopt Christianity. Um, uh, This is where Jonah came and preached about about Yahweh and saw this massive conversion for the people to follow Yahweh. Uh, at the preaching of Jonah. And the first Christian denomination ever created was the Assyrian Church of the East, which was founded in Edessa, which is today in modern-day modern Turkey, in the southeast of Turkey. Now, the, there were 1.5 million Assyrians in 1987, but because of uh, the, the troubles and the rise of Islamization, that number depleted to around about 800,000 by the time of 2003 with the, with the US-led invasion, 
we're looking at about 200,000 today, of whom nearly all of them are displaced and destitute. That is genocide. And it's not even that they are being destroyed and swept out of the, the arena, swept out of the Mesopotamian arena, but so is every evidence that they ever existed. Uh, their, their, uh, their culture is being destroyed. The museums, their, their monastery, ancient monasteries dating back to the, you know, the third and fourth century, they're being destroyed. They're being bombed and bulldozed deliberately. Uh, and, and just as the Armenian genocide took place under the cover of World War One, so too this genocide is taking place under the cover of a geopolitical crisis in the Middle East today. And it's very, very serious and it's, it's uh, very rarely talked about. One of the things uh, that you talk about in, and I suspect that there's need to actually be a little uh, forthright in making claims because that's what in fact, gets people thinking more deeply about the issues. But you say that today, after centuries of decline and decades of weakness, Islam is back and back with a vengeance. Mm. Islamic expansion is back and with it, invasion, conquest and colonisation, including predatory migration. There's a lot in all of that, but to focus on the idea that Islam is back and we might have thought that it was toothless a little while ago but of course it's not toothless it's very very significant today that's right now what you were reading there is an excerpt from chapter three in the book which is in that chapter is entitled hasten to success which is a line out of the muslim call to prayer uh there's one the call to prayer is basically a statement of faith and a call to islam but it does include one promise and that's the promise of success and that's worldly success, power, wealth, uh, dominance, supremacy, and control. It's, it's a totally political understanding and a material understanding of, of what that success is. And lit- people forget, you see, that Islam had about a thousand years of continual success uh, from, from the middle of the 7th century, you know, six. 30 uh, you know, AD, right through to when it was finally held up at the gates of Vienna. And uh, you know, right on the doorstep of Europe there, people forget that there was a time when Rome was evacuated because of the threat of, of Islam. Uh, but at that point, when Islam was stopped at the gates of Vienna, it was a new age. This is post-Reformation. And you've got Europe rising now. You've got Europe uh, freed from its uh, sort of the shackles that, that it had in the Middle Ages is now freed uh, with this whole idea of the value of work, uh, a new, po- new political thinking, new spiritual thinking, and Europe rises. And you've got the Industrial Revolution and you've got growth and Europe rises over the top of the head of crumbling Islam and you've got then you've got centuries of rollback of Islam right up to the point of the the Balkan Wars in uh, around 1910 1912 and then the World War 1 which sees the breakup of the Ottoman Empire and in 1924 uh, Ataturk um abolishes the caliphate now people don't realize that in all the history of Islam 
there's, we've only been without a caliphate for 90 years. 90 years out of a 1,400-year history. That's not long. And, uh, but what happened with this great pushback against Islam, with Islam being uh, run over the top of by an ascendant uh, West, is that the Islamic scholars realized that they needed to reform Islam. They said, uh, Islam is weak because we are no longer worshipping God uh, the way we used to, we should. We are no longer being uh, observant of Sharia as we should. So the, the answer to get God's blessing, to get Allah's blessing, is more Sharia observance, more uh, fundamentalist Islam. So well, and all the while that that was going on, there was what I call Islamic resistance. So that wherever the infidels, wherever the, the uh, repressed and subjugated nations started to rise up underneath the Ottoman Empire, they would be crushed uh, with Islamic resistance. And there, there is just a string of some of the most horrid, bloody massacres through the 19th century uh, before the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. But you see, the work of Islamic reform didn't stop. While the West thought that Islam was dead, it was all over, and uh, they could forget about it, the work of Islamic reform kept going. And it, and it emerges again with the Islamic revolutions in 1979, which trigger off a whole new uh, uh, energy behind this worldwide revival of Islam. So Islam is back. And none of what's happening today is unprecedented. Islam is back and it's doing what it has done all through its history. It's unprecedented in our lifetime, but it's not unprecedented at all. Let's just dwell on a couple of points here while I hear your heartbeat, because when you say that Europe rose against crumbling Islam, you've got this idea of people who are under the Islamic religion uh, treating their religion less uh, more or less importantly and uh, not adhering to their own Sharia law in that time. But the ascendant West, the ascendant Europeans that then did push back Islam, uh, am I correct in saying, because you're, you're talking about uh, post-Reformation here, you're talking about Christian Europe who was able to roll back Islam. It, this was a religiously uh, motivated rise in Europe. And, uh, and the interesting uh, issue, of course, there is that you've got secularism in so much of the West now that it might not have a hope of rising against a new militant Islam. But uh, comment for me, if you would, please, Elizabeth, on the idea of Christian Europe arising. Yes, I know. I'd, what I'd say, I'd say that it's a, it's a very... It's almost a semantic uh, uh, um, uh, thing here. I'd say that, uh, that the pushback against Islam wasn't so much religiously motivated as it was religiously energised. So I don't know that Europe was actually saying, like launching a crusade at that point, uh, through the through the you know the seventeenth and eighteenth and eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, but because of its uh, because of the Reformation, because of how that changed Europe and energized Europe and really opened Europe up to so much in terms of science and discovery 
and uh, and energy that it gave. It was Christianity that gave Europe the strength and energy to rise up over the top of Europe. And I think yeah, what we are seeing now is a Europe that has thrown away its Christianity and is throwing away all the things that has made Europe great, all the things that has made Western civilization great and open and dynamic. Uh, we've thrown it away, and what we're seeing now is a crumbling culture, a culture that is essentially on the edge of collapse, if it is not collapsing already. And I don't believe that Europe and Western civilization will be able to really confront Islam until it regains its faith in Christianity and is strengthened once again with the wisdom of Christianity. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. It's Neil with you. We're talking through issues in Elizabeth Kendall's brand new book called After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. You can be part of our conversation on 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth, let's get into some of the uh, essential elements of your book. Uh, address something that's quite straightforward by way of a question but uh, has a significant answer. What is the Middle East crisis about? Okay, now if you imagine a map of the Middle East, it's, it's like a pinwheel and you've got three historic imperial powers that have all ruled over the whole Middle East at some, some period. You've got the Iran or the Persians, there's been a Persian Empire has ruled all over the, the Middle East. Then you've got the Arabs. And from the time of Muhammad, they, they swept up north all through the Middle East. And you had the Arab Empire. And then the Turks came in and you had the Ottoman Empire. And so you've got this pinwheel that has Turkey, Iran and Saudi Arabia. And in the middle, we have the Fertile Crescent or Mesopotamia, which is Syria and Iraq. And this is a melting pot. This is what we often call or refer to as the, the cradle of civilization. So this is the, this is the homeland of, of Abraham from when he set out from Ur, which is in, in southern Iraq, uh, and the, the homeland of the Assyrian people. But it's a land that other empires have swept over time and time again. Now, at the end of World War, during World War I, uh, the Ottoman Empire was broken up and, you, and, uh, and Britain and France controlled Mesopotamia. And that situation of having Western powers really dominating that Middle Eastern area, that Mesopotamian heartland, the Fertile Crescent, uh, has been that way for 100 years. Uh, first it was the, the, the Europeans and then the Americans um, have dominated that area, but those days are over. Those days are over. And what we are having now is a struggle for, hege for hegemony. The Turks, the Persians and the Arabs are again struggling to see who is going to control Mesopotamia. And, and the stakes are high, really high, because this is the historic fault line between the Sunnis and the Shias, as well as between the three historic powers. It's also, it, it has a great impact on oil and gas pipeline politics because whoever controls the territory, that's whose gas and oil pipelines get to travel through the territory. So it 
the stakes are really, really high. And what has made the situation so volatile has been, um, you, know, you know, at the time of World War I and, and even after that, you had a strong uh, north-south Sunni bloc. It was all Sunni, Sunni, Sunni from Turkey right through Mesopotamia and down into the Arabian Peninsula. But what we've seen in recent decades... Uh, from the 1980s at least, has been the rise of what is often called the Shia Crescent. So the, the, the empowerment of Iran and the Shias. Uh, Syria, once Syria was under Alawite rule, it became part of the Shia axis or the Iranian axis. And when the Americans removed Saddam Hussein from Iraq, uh, so, uh, Iraq became part of the Iranian axis too when they democratically elected a pro-Iran Shia dominated government so instead of having a solid Sunni bloc going north to south you now have a solid uh, Iranian led bloc going east to west and that means that every, all the oil and gas pipelines are going to be Iran uh, controlled oil and gas pipelines these will be Shia uh, deals, not Sunni deals. So it, it's got very, it's a very high stakes situation. Let me ask you about Turkey. It is obviously in the headlines and wherever you look right now, but President Erdogan and uh, his very swift response to uh, to deepen the Islamization of Turkey after the failed military coup just in these uh, past week. Uh, any thoughts on, on Turkey and its arise in, in ascendancy right now in the sense of, of uh, deepening its Islamization? Well, Turkey's been undergoing a process of Islamization ever since Erdogan came to power, which was in 2002. And the, um, he was democratically elected really as a protest vote by, uh, by the Turkish people who had been undergoing radicalization for some time. Uh, it was a protest vote against uh, America uh, bringing its aeroplanes into Turkey and being able to fly bombing sorties into Iraq uh, from Turkey. Uh, the Muslim Turks protested and kicked out the secular government and elected what was an, an Islamist government at, at that time. Now, there'd been a lot of work uh, through the Gulen movement uh, to bring uh, Erdogan to power, um, and he's been tightening his grip on power ever since. He's what's known as a neo-Ottoman, uh, or a pan-Turk, so he's got very high uh, ambitions to see another Turkic empire and for him to be the sultan is often mocked and uh, satirised and drawn in cartoons dressed as a sultan, you know, Sultan Erdogan. But this is his great ambition and his, his dream for like the, the revival of the Ottoman Empire. But, uh, so this is really serious and he's a, he's a conservative Islamist. He, he, the, the secular government had even imprisoned him at one stage for his uh, Islamic agitation. His pro-Muslim brotherhood, he was very close to Egypt's uh, Mohammed Morsi. He's very close to Hamas, regularly photographed with the leaders of Hamas. And uh, he is a strong supporter of jihad in Syria. Uh, the Turkish-Syrian border became known as the Jihadi Highway, because um, Erdogan has had such a lot of involvement in encouraging international jihadists to flood into Syria. 
So um, uh, to, to see what has happened recently, uh, it just fills me with absolute uh, grief and horror. It looks like it was not a secularist coup as it had been sort of supposed to be, but was a Gulenist, definitely a Gulenist coup. So it was a faction within the military. But while Erdogan is a pro-Muslim Brotherhood conservative Islamist, the Gulens are liberal Islamists, and they're into interfaith dialogue and West, being westernised and all, all that sort of thing. So the Gulenists and Erdogan are at war with each other, and it was a faction that rose up, but they were just they were not able to to go through with it, and um, and it failed. And what Erdogan's going to do now is he's he's going to use this uh, to get rid of. Everyone who disagrees with him, everyone who he thinks could be an enemy of the state, and that's not just Gulenists, and that's not just the secularist Kemalists. It's also going to be Kurds, and it's going to be Christians. And we need to be in prayer for the Christians of Turkey, because I have a very bad feeling that things are going to become very uncomfortable for them. Elizabeth, uh, we'll continue our conversation on these very important issues and uh, want to talk a little bit more about Syria. But why don't we take a call from our listener, Chris, is on the phone, who's been waiting very patiently. Chris from Victoria. Hi, welcome along, Chris. What are your thoughts? Good day, Elizabeth. Yeah, I just want to say uh, regarding that Erdogan, uh, in Joel Richardson's documentary, he does describe the uh, worship of Erdogan as almost Nazi-like and and also goes far to say that Christian persecution in the Middle East stems from, you know, the very fact that America is so weak. The, the black Muslim president, and if they uh, unleash Hillary Clinton in the world, uh, Panda Bell or Jezadora, as I call her, uh, all hell will break loose. Um, uh, the, the thing is, um, you know what I mean, it, it, the end game of everything I keep saying, a lot of things, is the Antichrist. And for the Antichrist to come, there's got to be absolute chaos and that's what the global elite want to do. They want to uh, spread uh, Muslim chaos in Europe, spread it in uh, in the West, and the only way they can do that is through uh, uh, migration. And and this refugee thing now seems to be the uh, the, the uh, wooden, you know, the Trojan horse, the easiest way to do it. So uh, when in fact, like we say, the Christians are the most persecuted, but they'll just they're just going to ignore that and bring Muslim refugees in to cause chaos. Chris, uh, interesting thoughts. Let's get some response from Elizabeth Kendall on Chris's thoughts. Uh, yes, the, the migrant crisis that Europe is, is uh, undergoing at the moment was a very, uh, a very deliberate uh, predatory migration organised by Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, ISIS actually said that they were going to... ISIS from both uh, Mesopotamia and Libya said that they were going to flood uh, Europe with migrants and they even boasted that they would be uh, heavily infiltrating those migrants. Gaddafi warned before he was toppled that, uh, in, fa- in fact, in the interview with Gaddafi, the, the Russian uh, interviewer says, are you worried, Mr. Gaddafi, that, um, that the West seems to be you know, keen to, to have you toppled? And he laughed or chuckled and he said, no, they would never do that. The West wouldn't want me to be toppled because if I was toppled, then Al-Qaeda would uh, fill Libya and the Mediterranean would become an ocean of chaos. And he was exactly right. And, you know, there's been, it's been a very deliberate move. Turkey is now using 
the migrant crisis, uh, which it controls, it's, it controls the tap, you know, it's at the spigot. It opens and closes the floodgate like a dam. And it, it's using this migrant crisis now to get uh, concessions from Europe. Uh, the other Arab countries of the region are refusing to take any more refugees. So Jordan won't take any more. They've got plenty. And Saudi Arabia, which actually has a tent city uh, set up to, to host, you know, hundreds of thousands, I think, of uh, Hajj pilgrims, won't take any won't take any migrants at all. They're being funneled into Europe, and it's very deliberate and it's very concerning, and uh, it's tragic. I I I've, I really fear that we're watching the uh, the the slow death or even a rapid death of Europe right before our eyes in the days in which we live. Chris from Victoria, thanks so much for your input today here on 2020. And uh, interestingly, as Chris raised uh, those sorts of issues, he actually mentioned uh, the Antichrist and people who talk about the Bible and biblical prophecy. Of course, uh, there is an individual that Christians often will be thinking about uh, in a biblical sense, called the Antichrist. But there is also what the Bible talks about, the spirit of Antichrist. And uh, when you talk about the way that the world is reacting, and as Christians are, as we've been saying, something of the meat in the sandwich here, there is a sense, isn't there, Elizabeth Kendall, in which this spirit of Antichrist does appear to be quite prevalent uh, in many of the actions that are happening around the world. Oh, definitely. and I, But I, I tend to... My own personal preference is I sort of avoid these some um, uh, these sort of speculations. You know, right since uh, the, since the beginning of the Christian era, there have been Christians living under such intense persecution that they've been convinced that the Antichrist was there and that the end is is about to come. I mean, Paul had to write to the church in Thessalonica, uh, you know, to convince them to press on and not to, you know, think that, you know, that the Christ was necessarily going to come next week just because the persecution was so severe. You know, the persecution under the Khans when the Mongols came through Central Asia was probably the worst persecution the church has ever known. Uh, you know, uh, Genghis Khan's, I think it was his grandson, uh, was, uh, uh, I can't remember his first name, one of the Khans who ruled in Central Asia. He used to build pyramids out of human skulls. You know, uh, there have been, there have been ages all through the, the, the modern era, all through the church era, where persecution has been so intense that the church was just convinced that, you know, this must be the end. But, you know, God is at work and, uh, you know, I think he has work to do yet. And um, I think what we must do is we must in, uh, engage with the, the problem that is at hand uh, with, and keep our eyes on the situation at hand uh, to be engaged with the matters of the day and responding to the matters of the day, uh, no matter what our, um, you know, eschatology is. Let's come back to the issues surrounding Syria in the Middle East and the importance of a figure like the uh, the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad. Uh, why do people insist that Assad must go? Well, you know, we get told one thing, but I actually think it's something else. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, Assad has ruled over a country. I mean, I mean, it's in rubbles now, but 
for a long time, Syria was one of the countries you could take your family to for a holiday. And uh, as I've pointed out to some people when I, when I talk about you know, the issue of the Middle East, you know, all the jails in the Middle East are full. I mean, the, our jails are full. Our jails are full of criminals, you know, rapists and, and bank robbers and uh, car thieves and everything. In the Middle East, you tend to find that jails will either be full of um, apostates and blasphemers and comedians and, uh, and uh, women who have been raped and gays who are on death row and all that sort of thing, or else the prisons are going to be full of Salafi agitators and Muslim Brotherhood uh, activists and uh, jihadis who want to commit terror. And it's either, it seems to be either one or the other. I mean, in, in Egypt, uh, when Mubarak was in power, the jails were full of Salafis and jihadis and Muslim Brotherhoods. And then when Morsi came to power, he freed all them and started arresting apostates and blasphemers and, and women and, and cartoonists. And then when he was kicked out of power and Sisi came in, the, uh, the apostates uh, came out and the Muslim Brotherhood went back in. So, you know, you can't just look at the Middle East and say Assad's a dictator. This is the Middle East that we're talking about. And, and uh, you know, any, any stability or security... Is uh, is tightly held, and it's a very volatile situation. Now, Assad ruled over a secular regime that you could have taken your family to for a holiday, and that you could have toured the beautiful souks of Aleppo and visited the Crusader castles and seen Muslims and Christians living peaceably together and celebrating Christmas together in the streets and things like that. And yet, all of a sudden, we're told we have to get rid of Assad because his He's a cruel dictator who uh, cracks down on protests and abuses human rights. And who are our partners in this, in this venture? Turkey, who's got more, uh, more journalists and artists and comedians in prison than practically any other nation in the world, and Saudi Arabia. So clearly something's not quite true here. And the reality is that having empowered uh, having empowered the Shia Axis uh, since, since uh, Baghdad became part of the Shia Axis, uh, the West is now very keen to move Syria out of the Shia Axis. Not only that, the, uh, the Turks and the Saudis and the Qataris, they had planned for a gas pipeline to run from Qatar up through Saudi Arabia and Syria into Turkey so Turkey could sell the gas to Europe. And for that to happen, they need regime change in Damascus. So uh, Turkey, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, uh, with the backing of, of the West, saw the Arab Spring protests as a perfect opportunity and a cover under which they could enact regime change in Damascus so they could install a Sunni regime more amenable to Sunni interests. And it's as simple as that. And everything else is a lie. Everything else is propaganda. That is the nuts and bolts of it. The title of your book, we mentioned this in our introduction, After Saturday Comes Sunday, based on an Islamic catch cry. Uh, first we killed the Jews, then we killed the Christians. Uh, tell me about one of the uh, focuses of your book called The Evolution of a War. Uh, what do you mean by the evolution of a war? 
Well, what we have from the very beginning in, say, say 2012, you have the Arab Spring uh, uprisings. Now, right from the beginning, the Christians were warning that this was dangerous. The banned Muslim Brotherhood came out in public to lead these protests and chanting, you know, death to Assad. And chant, another chant they were, that they were chanting was um, Christians to Beirut, Alawites to the grave. Christians to Beirut, Alawites to the grave. In other words, we're going to cleanse Syria of Christians and we're going to kill every single Alawite. So this was a threat of ethnic cleansing and genocide right from the beginning, from April 2011. And Christians were warning about this, but, uh, but the West uh, didn't pay them uh, any attention. And because they, you know, if, they hadn't, if there hadn't have been massive external support from uh, the US and Turkey and Qatar and Saudi Arabia, it would have been over in a week. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole, the rioting, the protests would have been put down in a week. And we could have all sat down and had a talk about what's going on in Syria. And hundreds of thousands of lives might have been saved. But instead, Turkey, Qatar and Saudi Arabia, backed by the US, uh, threw their weight behind uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and the regime changes. And what we ended up with was a civil war in Syria. And that civil war grew... And eventually, uh, when it looked like there was going to be a stalemate, which was bad news for the Assad government because they only have a limited supply of fighters compared to the jihadists who have a bottomless pit, then uh, Hezbollah and Iran uh, came in to uh, help Assad and turn everything around. And it quickly at that point became a regional conflict a regional conflict between uh, the, what I call the Sunni axis and the axis of resistance or the Shia axis, which also separates uh, the West from the East. So the, with the West backing the Sunni axis and the East, by which I mean Russia, backing the Shia axis. So you end up with this, this massive, massive conflagration that could have just been protests that, that were put down before talks. Now we have this massive conflagration and underneath it, underneath it all, are the, the Christians who are being uh, quietly eliminated uh, from Mesopotamia. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Elizabeth Kendall, our guest, we're talking about the contents of her new book called After Saturday Comes Sunday. And uh, really running a little bit of short, uh, short of time now, Elizabeth, I want to come to those sorts of issues that affect every Christian believer who's listening into our conversation right now. Because while it seems so far removed that these things are happening in the Middle East, on the other side of the world, here we are as Christians in Australia. In, in some way, uh, we feel as though we need to stand with brothers and sisters in Christ in a sense of Christian solidarity. How do you describe how Christian believers in Australia uh, have an opportunity to respond to these things that are happening around the world? Well, there's, there's a number of things I'd like to, to say about this. Um, first of all, I'd like to come back to the title of the book, After Saturday Comes Sunday. Now, I mentioned uh, in the beginning of our interview that, that that forms the framework of the whole book. It's my first chapter and it's my last chapter. And the reason it's, it's my last chapter is because what I do there is I take that 
genocidal threat after Saturday comes Sunday and I run it through a theology of the cross. And this is the, a theology that says that the cross is not just an event that happened Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 2,000 years ago, and it's not even just what it achieved. It's not even just the atonement, but the cross is more than that. It's revelation, and it shows us something or reveals to us something about how God works in the world. What, it sh- what the cross shows us is that God doesn't sit back in heaven on a comfortable throne and uh, deal with our problems uh, from a distance or by remote control. We have a God who inserts himself into the problem. Christ inserted himself into the problem of sin and death in order to defeat sin and death. He submitted to sin and death. And in that grave... He uh, overcame death and then he rose again. And the thing is, if we look at what, what it was like on that first Easter Saturday, for the disciples on that first Easter Saturday, their whole world had fallen apart. Their, they, the man they thought was their saviour was dead and in the grave, as far as, as, they, as they knew. It was over. Uh, the world had won and they were packing up their bags and heading out of Jerusalem and buckling down, uh, wondering what was going to come next. They thought it was over, but it wasn't. And on Sunday, uh, the Lord rose. After Saturday came Sunday. And this tells us something about how God works. Even when it looks as if it's over, and all our dreams have been dashed, and everything's going to hell in a basket, and it's failed, God has failed, and the world has won, That's not what's happening. God is alive. God is active. And more than that, he's in there. He is in the midst of it all. And he is doing his work in fulfillment of promise. He is using the very things that put him in the grave to overturn overturn their effects. It's absolutely amazing. So I run the Middle Eastern crisis through and that threat through a theology of the cross. And I look at what God is doing in the Middle East with, belief, with people coming to Christ, Muslims coming to Christ in unprecedented numbers. And I then appeal to the church, please don't think that because this is so ugly and because this is so, looks so overwhelming that you, need, that you should just disengage from it and step back and maybe close your eyes and, and, uh, and just let it go. Because this is the day when God is at work and he's at work in the midst of it and he calls us to take up our cross and follow him and to share one another's burdens and to be a voice for the voiceless and all the things he calls us to do in the scriptures. So this is the day to engage in the crisis in the Middle East. And I can tell you, the Christians of the Middle East, they need all the help they can get. This is a day to put aside all denominational differences. Forget it. Just forget it. A house divided against itself will not stand. And the church needs to be united and it needs to see that this is the day when the free and prosperous church needs to reach out to the persecuted, existentially imperiled church in the Middle East and and help it. Help it come through this crisis as God does his work in fulfillment of promise. And God has made promises for the Middle East and he who promised is faithful. 
And I oftentimes like to talk about the organizations that have an impact with direct connection to persecuted believers. And and I know uh, Christian Faith and Freedom, of which you are an advocate, Elizabeth Kendall, uh, you are talking about and telling the stories of, of people who are persecuted. But there's a whole bunch of organizations like Open Doors uh, or Voice of the Martyrs, uh, another one, uh, Operation Mobilization, OM, uh, wonderful organizations that are working and uh, really on-the-ground support Uh, for people who are in these persecuted situations, you really have to either have a personal alignment with one of these groups or you have to somehow or other align your church with one of these groups to really engage with people who are on the receiving end of this level of persecution. Is that the case? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think we've come to a a place where we we can no longer ignore this suffering, this, this suffering. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we have to realize that Christ himself is grieving over this suffering, the suffering of his people. And Christ is there in the midst of them with his hands reached out to us saying, come and help me and join me in this place and do all the things I've asked you to do. Now, we, we can't keep ignoring this. I believe we've come to a time when we need to be supporting both mission and aid to the persecuted. Churches need to be doing both. They need to be engaging in mission and in aid to the persecuted. I mean, often those things go together. As soon as, as soon as mission starts to gain traction, the persecution kicks in, and we need to be in, involved. And you know, the persecuted church is on the front line of missionary work anyway. I think we need to look at the, at the persecuted church, look at the displaced Christians in Erbil who have been ethnically cleansed out of all of Nineveh, their homeland, and they now live as displaced and destitute refugees in Erbil. They are actually uh, the Lord's missionaries in that place. They are at the front line of mission and witness. And when we give aid to them, we're not just helping them survive and feed and keep warm in winter. We're also keeping the, the flame of the church alive in that place. And, and, you know, the day has come for the church to, to rise to this challenge. Well, Elizabeth, we have run out of time. I'll point people to elizabethkendall.com, and that's a place where you could access Elizabeth's new book, also uh, the Religious uh, Liberty Prayer Bulletin as well. The book is called After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. There is a call to prayer for Christian believers. It's a call to connect with Uh, those persecuted believers and we mentioned a number of organizations and Elizabeth always so uh, deeply appreciate your insights into things that are going on uh, in the Middle East and around the world where persecuted believers are on the suffering end and oftentimes under the sword of Islam. I appreciate your insights again today and thank you so much for being with us on 2020. Well thank you for the opportunity Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.